T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Time now for one of my absolute favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University and the University of Minnesota Law School. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, and I have to start off by mentioning one thing, that I sent you a picture through your phone this week proving that I can actually grow um, a Trump Chia pet. <laughs> and for those we, – we, this has been an ongoing theme here. Um, if you didn't hear some of our prior discussions, uh, I often use – I often call you for, for help with stories uh, to get ex- your expertise on politics but also legal issues. And I went ventured over to your office at Hamlin and there was a large bucket, a large bucket with full of water, several maybe three or four gallons of water and two blobs in it. And I, I was just going, what are you doing? And you were trying to – Grow your chia pet hair, right? Or soaking it, or I don't know what you were doing. Well, still, you're supposed but to pre-soak the chia, the chia heads before you actually put the seeds on them. And I have Obama and Trump chia heads, and I explained to you that the first time I did it, we couldn't get any well hair um, um, growth on, growth on the two skulls, two heads. And if, as as we have talked about before, you are actually a gifted and talented gardener. So, <laughs> but you somehow can't grow chi- a chia pet. <laughs> Right, but we. But now, now you, now we're past that. We have passed it, but I have to still give credit again. Um, I have an administrative assistant who helped me on it. So, Miriam, if you're listening tonight, you get all the credit for it. And so, she bailed me out. All right, yay, Miriam. <laughs> all right, well, listen, um, we're so glad, and it's, it's, um, you, you're kind of headed to the comb over. Yes, with the Donald one, which is great. Enough, I sent you a picture <laughs> on your cell phone, and, and and right now they both Trump and Obama both look like they stuck their fingers in an electric socket, like like that. But the Trump hair is, um, well, you know what I mean by hair, but you know the herb is long enough at this point that I can actually do a comb over. So next week when I go into my office on Monday, I'm going to do that. So what I'll eventually do is post this on like my Facebook page or something like that, or on my or on my blog or something like that, so people can see the comb over Trump. All right. Well, and as as I I'm going to try and find this on my phone here as as we are speaking right now because it is pretty funny stuff. If you want to post it on your on your Facebook or your website, wherever. Go ahead. And do that too. <laughs> I've got your permission to post your you GPS. Do, you do. Um, all right. Well, this is a a momentous day of sorts. This is actually the 100th day of the Trump administration, and and it's interesting because I think this president really talked about what he was going to do dur- on the campaign trail during his first – well, he talked about actually what he was going to do the first day. Right. But he really talked about how much he was going to get done in the early days of his administration. And is that something – I mean, did he do that more than most candidates or is that something that all candidates do? All candidates do in a variety of ways lay out obviously their entire agenda in terms of what they want to accomplish. And lots of them will describe what they hope to achieve in those first hundred days. I do think Donald Trump had a had a longer wish list um, than I think many presidents have had, because I think a lot of people going into office who have had either military or prior government experience temper what they can actually get done, or temper what they say they can get done 
understanding the complexities of moving legislation through Congress and so forth. And I think part of why Trump embellished so much spoke to the fact that he didn't have that prior experience in the military or in the government. And as he's recently confessed, when he said, this is a lot harder than I thought, I think he thought it was going to be a lot easier to move a lot of his promises um, than it turned out to be. So I think that's one issue. The second is is that I think we're really seeing the, the education of, of Donald Trump realizing that some things that he promised might not have been very good ideas. Well, uh, you know, I, I, and I do think the comment, um, I thought it would be easier. Right. Was stunning to me because I think I think no matter what, I, I don't think anyone thinks being president is easy. No, I was going to say is that is that I think almost everybody recognizes the fact that this might very well be the hardest job in the world. Uh, we often describe it also as maybe the most powerful person in the world, but there are also things that presidents just can't do. At the end of the day, you know that you know Richard Neustadt arguably wrote the greatest book ever um, on the presidency called um, um, Presidential Power and said the essence of presidential power is the power to persuade, is that you just can't order people around like kings or generals, or in this case, CEOs. You actually have to persuade people. You've got to worry about things like checks and balances, separation of powers, and all that places significant limits on what presidents can actually do. And and. Clearly. Uh, but but, you know, I thought that that was just so um, yes. that was a remarkable interview that he did with Reuters because he, he actually seemed almost wistful yes. about his, saying, I loved my past life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had so much going on. And then he kind of went on to talk about the freedoms that he had. Right. And what's, what, what was interesting about that about that interview, it reminded me also of President's when they get to, like, year number eight. And I say that because I remember um, George Bush in his last year was, was at that point of, of, of saying, yes, um, he kind of wanted to get back to his private life. You know, he wanted to, um, you know, to escape the presidency. Obama was sort of that in his last year. But I've seen a couple of what, post, post-presidency interviews of George Bush over the years, and he seemed perfectly delighted to be able to escape sort of public scrutiny, public eye. You know, he's become a, I'm not sure if I would call him a great painter, but he's an enthusiastic painter at least. But the point is, is that usually presidents get to their eighth year and they're kind of exhausted. Like, wow, I almost got this sense that, that Trump, after, what, 90-some days, was where other presidents are, are after eight years. Right. I mean, it definitely. I mean, it almost made you wonder if this is where he is after 100 days, where is he going to be two years from now? Well, I know. And, I think, and he's not young either. That's right. He's, was he 72, 72? Isn't he the oldest first-time elected president? I think he is because he's over, he's over 70, correct? Yes. And, and, but I think, I think he was actually older yes. than, than Ronald Reagan was when he was first elected. Not by a lot, but you know, right. so I, th- I think that that's something um, – Correct. He's older, and I'm not saying anything disparaging when I say this about him. Also, um, remember, was it last year? You know, um, I think on the medical exam or some medical information he released pointed out that that he is overweight, and I think he has some um, blood pressure problems. If I remember correctly, you know, so so he's not he's not a picture of perfect health either. On top of his age, and, and I just say that because you know I'm, I'm not demeaning people you know who are in their 70s, but but he's he's in a very stressful job 
um, um, older than anybody else who's been in that job and not in the best of health. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, uh, we do have to take a quick break here. When we come back, let's talk more about the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Esme Murphy, along with David Schultz, talking about the first 100 days of the Trump administration. So what has he gotten done? I'd say his, his, his two biggest accomplishments is getting a Supreme Court nomination through Neil Gorsuch and canceling of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think those are the two. The two, if he can sort of look at his bucket list in terms of what he wanted to check off, he has those. Beyond that, he doesn't have any major legislative victories whatsoever. He hasn't been able to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, he hasn't moved on taxes, which he said he was going to do right away. And if we also look at his executive orders, he has had three executive orders now um, shot down by the federal courts dealing with immigration, and it's not clear if any of his other executive orders are really going to make much of a difference in terms of going forward. So, so right now, I'd have to say not a lot of accomplishments in terms of what he can look at. And in terms of the health care bill, the thing he said he was going to do first, mm-hmm. it looks like he's lost again. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it does not look like this is this is far. And I think he actually alluded to that as well uh, when he said, I think if, in, early on, this health care thing is, is really complicated, right. which, of that. course, it is. It is. It's very complicated. You know, when you're trying to reform essentially one-sixth of the U.S. economy, it becomes you know, very, very complicated. And there was an effort to try to do it again this week um, in terms of, of, of bringing it up for a vote again. And he couldn't get agreement either within the Republican Party. And then the Democrats said that 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 they would not vote on a, a stopgap measure to keep the government funded if there was a vote scheduled on the health care bill. So so that so that's off again. That's off again at this point. Whether or not it comes back, we don't know. Um, but he was unsuccessful there. And then let's sort of take some other positions that that he took during the campaign that he's changed on. You know, during the campaign he said that things such as Syria were none of our business and and suddenly, you know, you know, he he's gotten us involved potentially in Syria with you know with with the with the airstrikes. Um he thought that or he was gonna say he was going to um, build the wall. The wall doesn't look like that's going to happen, and we don't have the funding for it. Um, he said that he was going to label China as a currency manipulator and at the same time um, was going to impose tariffs on them. Hasn't done that. Thought NATO wasn't important. Um, now NATO is. And so in so many things, we could sort of run off a checklist here on a lot of the positions that he took while running for president of the United States. He has reversed himself um, really um, um, over the last, I would say, the last month or so. There's almost two Trump presidencies now within the first hundred days. You know, there's the Trump presidency, let's say, in the first 30 or so days. Um, And since then, there almost seems to be a second Trump presidency uh, as it's starting to evolve into perhaps a third Trump Trump presidency, pardon me, going into, you know, the 101st day forward. All right. And I do want everyone to know, because I'm sure that they have been waiting with waiting with bated breath. I have posted your Chia pet picture All right. on my Twitter. If you go to uh, and it also will end up on my Facebook um, at Esme Murphy uh, on either Facebook or Twitter at Esme Murphy. You'll see it. I give you full credit. And, and folks, you can see the comb over coming. 
Right, right. So it's really good. It's, they are really funny. Yeah, right now I would describe <laughs> right now I would describe the hairdos for both Obama and Trump, especially Trump, as kind of a Richard Simmons look, if you know what I mean. Well, it, it's it, but it's got the potential is there for the comb over. That's is, what I like is. about it so it much. Is. It is. It, it it is, and so so this is this is the project on Monday. All right, absolutely. All right, and we'll, we'll keep updating these photos as, as we get them. Um, in terms of of where he goes from here, I mean, the healthcare situation, it's like they want to keep the best parts. It, it just it just looks like they're, 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 it was some of what they want to keep is really the essence of it. Right. Um, but then they're trying to roll it back. I, I don't see how they're going to do this. I, I really don't. They don't. I, I, think, I think if one of the val- – there's a couple of things here. One is it's getting the political consensus to do that in terms of – keeping the, the good parts versus scrapping what they think is the bad parts. And they're not going to get cooperation with the Democrats, we know, on that. Um, the question is, can they sort of corral together really a very divided Republican Party, um, some who want to just completely replace the Affordable Care Act and not replace with anything, and some who want to make some variations of changes. And so, so they've got a political issue that's out there, especially at a time where now – uh, for the first time in the last couple of months now, first time since the Affordable Care Act was passed, that a majority of the American public actually supports it. You know, um, and so so that creates a problem. I think the second issue is that if one of the criticisms, I think she's a valid one of the of the original Affordable Care Act, was some of its actuarial soundness. And what I mean by that, in order for insurance to work, you have to get enough people who are healthy, um, who are paying into the system to be able to pay for those people who are sick. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the basic principle of, so, of, of insurance, the socialization of, of risk. And I mention that because there were some concerns about the idea of saying that the Affordable Care Act wasn't, wasn't financially actuarially sound, well, if you, which is why you had the mandate, but buy insurance to try to force healthy people to buy insurance. Well, it's going to be hard to say that we're going to still require um, insurance companies to cover pre-existing illnesses, cover um, children, um, and so forth, um, and and do it in a way that will be affordable um, if you don't require people to buy insurance. And so I think that's going to be a very, very difficult trick to deal with because as we talked about on this show, you know, during last, you know, last fall, when Governor Dayton pointed out that the Affordable Care Act was unaffordable for many people, it was true. Um, there's, a, there's, there's an affordability, and, and issue it still people. is, and it still is, um, and and there's no indications that the the fixes that were being talked about by Trump and the Republicans were going to fix that affordability issue whatsoever, and and so they're kind of stuck um, in terms of. What do you really do? Because you can't keep those um, nice provisions, we want to call it the popular ones, um, jettison everything else, um, and at the same time solve the affordability problem. Obviously a a very difficult situation as well. One of the things, obviously, Trump has has sort of continued to maintain his style. The brashness is there. The tweets are there. And that has worked for him. The question is, how does that translate when he starts tweeting about North Korea? This, well, this is- and, and, and it's just 
I think this has a lot of people nervous. Well, it does. But before, but let me just, before I even get to North Korea, let me point out how his his tweeting and use of social media and speeches have been used against him. You know, when he, you know, I, I mentioned at you know top of the hour that he's now had three different executive orders, two with the Muslim ban, one with sanctuary cities, uh, essentially halted by the courts. And when the Trump administration has gone to court and said, well, these are not Muslim bans, we're not trying to target people, what have the courts done? They have introduced his speeches and his, his tweets to say, well, look, at this is exactly what you are saying in all these pronouncements here, um, and they're using that language against him. Um, and so that is a problem for him, that, that he may be making the presidency more accessible by using the social media, but that very language is now hurting him. Um, and it's going to do the same thing with North Korea, because he's, he's been doing sort of foreign policy by, by Twitter, and that has really sort of escalated the tensions, you know, you know, with with North Korea, um, and it's probably why you have people like State Department, place people like secretaries of state and institutions like State Departments to handle stuff like this, because you really want to make sure that the things that you are saying um, are vetted properly, because so much of international politics is, is about. Um, is about the language and discourse that you use. And in terms of North Korea, though, is it is it especially tricky here? With with you've got somebody who's, uh, by all accounts, really not sound. Right. Of, right. Of mind. So you're right. I mean, we're looking at a country. That... And, and, and you know, the president also seemed to suggest, you know, had some sympathetic things to say about how difficult it must be to be Kim Jong Un. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, which I thought I think a lot of people were kind of trying to wrap their head around that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, we have a regime that that is so isolated that it doesn't really have to adhere to traditional international norms um, in terms of rules of diplomacy and etiquette. We know that it's a country, you know, that's that either has or is trying to acquire um, nuclear capabilities um, to fire missiles at the United States. We, we, I just mention this because it's an unpredictable regime in many ways, and the comments that Trump makes um, are just provoking a regime that that is already paranoid about the United States, already um, one that is outside the mainstream of the rest of the world, and so these kind of comments certainly don't help. Um, having said that, there was a great piece that was in the New York Times. The New York Times or the Washington Post, might have been the Washington Post, about a week ago that said what Trump has on his hands is a slow-ticking Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think that's a really interesting observation because at some point North Korea is going to get the capability of launching a missile, um, um, not just, let's say, Hawaii um, or Guam, but, ma- but mainland United States. And the question is, how does the United States um, plan on addressing that? And there doesn't seem to be either a viable military or short-term viable diplomatic solution for addressing that issue. It does seem as if the president has come to the understanding that he cannot just have an isolationist foreign policy. Exactly. Which, which, is, which is essentially what he said he would do. 
That's right. He's America's. I mean, to be America's first actually require or make America great again, or make America first. America first is what he really said in his inauguration. Actually requires the United States to have a significant um, international presence. Since World War II, you know, we have created you know what's called Pax Americana. We've created a world um, largely in the image of the United States. We won the Cold War, um, and and it's because the United States has been involved in the rest of the world. And if we retreat from it, it's going to be harder for the United States to be able to maintain that kind of world um, that Donald Trump really wants to have. All right, folks. So we are chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. We are going to take a quick break, give you some weather. And when we come back, we'll have more with him. So keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 836 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Along with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University, we want to switch gears now. The legislative session... The Minnesota legislature is going to wrap up, supposedly. Three weeks from Monday is the deadline. Correct. Your thoughts on where they are or where they aren't might be a better way to say it. Okay. Where, where they are is at this point is just, I think it was on Friday, the Republicans in the House and Senate agreed on what's called the budget targets. And what I mean by the budget targets is, you know, the Minnesota budget is actually 10 different um, bills, omnibus bills, each dealing with different areas like public safety and security or transportation. House and Senate have agreed on how much money they want to spend in each area. Now they get the Senate Senate back to the different chambers and conference committees to hammer it out, except there's a problem here. The problem is um, they don't have agreement with the governor. Um, and the governor's priorities in terms of spending versus what the Republicans want to do is far apart, upon which, also of which, the, the Republicans have lots of policy um, thrown into the budget bills. The upshot is, is that while it looks like um, they're getting close, they are a long way off um, with possible vetoes from the governor, and we're back to a situation where it seems to be the new normal in Minnesota now where, where we probably, um, barring something completely surprising, um, are going to go into what? special session again um, um, three weeks from now in terms of hammering out the budget bills. And so I think we are a long ways away because there isn't that agreement between the governor and the Republicans on a whole host of things. Well, and the the problem, it seems to me, is that Republicans, and I know that Speaker Kurt Doubt feels this way because I've asked him, they feel they have a mandate. They feel they have a mandate with what happened in the November elections by, by controlling now the, the House and the Senate. Right. I also think Governor Dayton feels that he has a legacy to protect and mm-hmm. he is the governor and it is his obligation to act as a roadblock to these plans. Exactly. I, mean, I think he feels very passionately about it. I mean, you've got the other side that feels very passionately about it. And, and so you have this what appears to be at loggerheads. I mean, the, the, the proposals on the budget aren't even anywhere close. I mean, they're completely off in terms of tax cuts and um, cuts to, to health and human services. Mass uh, transportation. It, it, it's not even anywhere in, in the ballpark, and you've got three weeks. Now, you do have a little wiggle room, I guess, because you've got um, 
you know, the, the session ends May 22nd, which is three weeks from Monday. And then you've got, what, six weeks before July 1st. Right. And, and if it's not done by July 1st, then you do have a shutdown. You have a shutdown. But, but, but you're right. So technically we've got this six-week wiggle room. But go talk to, for example, um, any school district in the state of Minnesota um, where they're looking at their new budget year starting on July 1st. Also, um, they need to know in advance of July 1st what, how much money they're going to have so they know, for example, um, how many teachers to hire. Um, um, they, they need to know it for a variety of purposes. Local government's in the same situation, too. So, yes, you can push it closer to July 1st. But the more you push it to that, you make it much more difficult to plan. And for any parent out there, you know, who's thinking about saying, well, gosh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making some decisions where I'm going to send my child to school next year or particular school districts. School districts face this quandary about budgeting and planning. Um, but, yes, we you know, go back. I'd say almost now 20 years, you know, the norm now seems to be, um, except in years where we have Democrats uh, having controlled everything, like a few years ago, Dayton in the House and the Senate, is that we're going to special session all the time, and we've had two government shutdowns and a near government shutdown. And, and I know early in January when we were doing this show at one point, we sort of speculated, and I said, um, I don't think it's too premature to talk about special session, not too premature to think about that we could be running into a, um, a potential governmental or partial governmental shutdown again. And I still think that's a possibility. Right. And, and the last one was in 2011. It was 20 days. Right. Uh, and let me ask you, why – I mean, because I was doing some research on this. I mean, why, why aren't other states having this problem? Why is it always us? And then in 20, 2005, I think there was a five-day shutdown. Right. And then in 99 or 2000, it was like a one-day shutdown or an almost shutdown because Ventura was governor. Um, Roger Moe was the Senate majority leader. And I can't remember who was when the, in the House was Republicans. And I think they missed it by one day. But, they, but, you know, but I think what they did is like a one-day – or one or two days they missed it by. But they did like a, a temporary stopgap measure to sort of say we're going to keep funding things. Um, so so, so we, we've had – Two or three. Now, why other states don't do it? You know, partly it's the fact that we're there's two reasons. One, such a we're such a polarized country now that in, in many states we either have single party control with with all the players. You know, so you know, the two chambers um, plus the governor. Um, um, we have something like that going on, or um, we have situations to where they have a different budget process in place now. One of the things that I like to compare us to is the state of Wisconsin. Um, and the state of Wisconsin has a piece of legislation in place that, I, that I've been advocating at least for a decade. I was going to say longer. When, when I used to do like a midnight show on weekends um, occasionally with, uh, on CCL, Brad Walton, you might remember him. Absolutely, yes. Wonderful person, unfortunately, who passed away a few years ago. And, and I talked about how in the state of Wisconsin, um, what happens if they can't reach their budget, they can't reach agreement on their budget by, by the 
um, the end of the fiscal year, there's an automatic continuing resolution that kicks into place that funds the government um, at the current level or, or the level of the previous budget process so that the government just can't shut down. Um, and I have advocated for years saying that we ought to have legislation like that that basically says if we can't reach agreement, we continue funding um, um, at, 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 let's say, at the level of the previous budget year just to make sure everything continues. Right. I mean, it's, something clearly needs to be done. Another issue, too, um, I don't travel a lot, but, you know, I couldn't help but notice last weekend uh, when I did travel, it, all the signs at the airport saying that you won't be able to use your Minnesota driver's license mm-hmm. to get on a plane starting in January. Yes. And, you know, there are an awful lot of people who don't travel very frequently but do it once or twice a year that don't have passports. That's right. And, you know, if you're, if you're a family, I, I can, you know, it's expensive to get a passport. It's very expensive. And just, just to get, you know, I mean, it's over $100 a person. I think it's over $100 for a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to have people wanting to get passports so they can get on a plane once a year. Right. And, one uh, of the things- and this, I mean, this, they've got to figure that out. They do. If, if you think of, of, of what should have been the easiest and perhaps one of the most important things the legislature needed to do this year was to basically pass real ID so that our driver's license would come in, in conformity with federal law so that it would at that point um, allow us to be able to use domestically our driver's license for ID purposes. Now, clearly, internationally, you have to use a passport. We know that. Right. You know, but I was just using an example here just a few weeks ago. Um, I was... Um, um, I was in Washington, D.C. I was at the State Department. Um, I made sure I brought my passport because um, they weren't going to accept um, my driver's license um, um, at, at the Harry S. Truman you know, State Department building at that point. And I've heard other stories at this point. Really? Of- so, so in other words, you're, you're going at a meeting at – you know, obviously a very secure facility, right. the State Department. And in order to get in, you had to, you had a Minnesota driver's license wasn't good enough. Wasn't going to cut it. And I knew it wasn't going to cut it. And in fact, I got there with the passport and I was actually talking to the security guard person there. And he said, yeah, um, they're, they're already um, for a lot of government buildings and installations, not letting people in um, um, from Minnesota. And I've heard a few people say that one of the places where they're having difficulty getting in already with just a Minnesota's driver's license um, are, are, are um, military bases. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's one of the ones with additional security. Anyway, I, I do. And I guess the hang up is that the governor wanted to attach it uh, to allow driver's licenses for undocumented workers. Correct. Which is obviously a very thorny thing. I I will say it's it's interesting that there are some Republicans who represent uh, areas of Minnesota that do have large numbers of of undocumented Mm -hmm. workers who actually are in favor of this because they think it's a safety issue uh, to have somebody go through that rigorous – um, that's right. That's you know, right. Uh, but but uh, it is it is very troubling, and I think I think people are going to be angry. Yes, they are. And so that was one that you expected to be a really easy one that should have happened back in January. And I'm still hopeful it's going to happen. But but it there's not been a lot of action on it in the last few weeks. And I suspect Real ID is becoming a bargaining chip. That that the two sides are going to use that as a bargaining chip on something else. And then if and if that let's say the budget collapses on something else, they're going to use the Real ID as the cudgel to to attack the other side. So so they politicize that. Um, but yes, that's going to have a big big 
um, implications if they don't pass that because Minnesotans are going to have a real major problem getting on airlines and doing just about anything else um, come January 1st. All right, listen, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to visit with you on really a a series of extraordinary circumstances involving the mayor of Minneapolis uh, in an election year. Um, Unusual stuff, to say the least. All right, so keep it here. More with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830. It is 54 degrees in the Twin Cities. I want to get a shout-out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche, and also a big thank you to Kevin Reed and also Jonathan Lowe, our two studio coordinators for this evening. Uh, Some final thoughts from Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, This is obviously an election year in Minneapolis and in other communities around uh, the state of Minnesota. The situation in Minneapolis, though, has been a little crazy. What are your thoughts about what is going on with Mayor Hodges? And uh, this time there are not 30 candidates running or 30 plus. There are only nine, I think. Only nine. Um, Well, well, first off, she's clearly vulnerable even before the campaign season started is that I think she's had a rocky, you know, three years as, as, as mayor, I think has had testy relationships in terms of dealing with the police chief and has faced, I think, real difficult problems in terms of, 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 of crime issues in, 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 in Minneapolis. But what's happened in the last few weeks, or less, even want to say the last 10 days, has been very odd. And two odd things. One of them, for many people, which came out of the sort of the clear blue sky, is her announcement, I think, was it, was it earlier this week or like last week, I think earlier this week, that she was a victim of, of sex abuse when she, was a, uh, when she was younger. And people sort of wondered, well, where's this story coming from? And then yesterday, when Chief, Janet, uh, Chief, Chief, um, Chief um, Harteau had, uh, had announced um, a, an appointment for the 4th District, the mayor vetoes it, and then now stories are coming out that, um, that she actually had earlier praised um, or at least acquiesced to the, to the selection. Yeah, there, there were these text messages that I, right. I guess, you know, the story in the Star Tribune, which certainly raises some questions as well. And, and nobody certainly wants to minimize at all, you know, somebody being you know, sexually assaulted exactly. or, or victimized. But the timing, I think, had a lot of people sort of wondering, you know, where has this been? And I think what she said is that politics had always kept her from, you know, bringing this out and, and, and talking about it openly. And certainly there are many people who are adults who do that, and we don't want to suggest that that's wrong, but I think there are many people right. who are wondering why now. Um, right. And then on top of that, there was another um, issue that happened where this you know person who writes columns or whatever came out with the list of the three worst mayors. Exactly. Uh, well, the worst mayor, according to this individual was Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York. Right. Number two was Mayor Bessie Hodges, and number three was Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. And it, it gave, you know, a host of reasons why, and, and the mayor strongly came out and, you know, criticized this as obviously she was going to do. One of the things they did talk about was uh, the problems with the construction in downtown Minneapolis, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been going on for a very long time, Nicolette, and it Nicolette, looks like Nicolette's right in your backyard. Right, it looks worse now than it did three years ago when it when it started. And I think I think a lot of people are sort of wondering what's happening. And you know, they're saying that it will be substantially done by the time of the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. of which you know there will be an awful lot of attention focused on Minnesota. But it's going to be. I, I think she's definitely. 
I think she needs to do something. She is. Now, it's important to remember also that, that the mayor's position in Minneapolis is actually a weaker position than St. Paul. I mean, it's actually called a weak mayor position. But having said that, there's a real set of criticisms out there that Hodges um, is a particularly weak mayor um, and is not exercising very good judgment. Um, and, 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 and just again, this, this past week, the stories have been very odd um, about, about her and her, her mayorship. And, and I was actually thinking up until very recently that as the incumbent, she still was the front runner to win re-election. Um, I'm increasingly coming to think at this point that she's going to have a very hard time winning. Now, who's actually going to win, I don't know. But, but I think she's got a very difficult challenge in terms of um, winning a second term in Minneapolis, especially when previous mayors seem to get elected to, what, three terms. Right. Well, and then I think I think her style, you know, contrasts sharply with, you know, a bear that was very, very popular, R.T. Ryback, who had, um, you know, who seemed to be everywhere and was extraordinarily accessible uh, to the news media. And and I think that that's and accessible to other groups. And I think that's something that she hasn't done. Right, and, and, it's, and it's odd given the fact she was on city council for what eight years, I think, or something like that. And one, I can't remember how many years, but you would have thought she would have honed a style um, that would make her more comfortable um, in public. And she actually seems very, very uncomfortable in public. She does, and she can also be extremely funny and charismatic. I've seen those those moments from her, and yet it's not there. Let me ask you this though: you have the rank choice voting in in. Minneapolis, where you get to choose the first and second choice, does that doesn't that help her? I think potentially it does because even if she is not the first choice, um, she still might enjoy name recognition enough among people that they list her as a second choice um, or say, well, she's the incumbent. And so, so I think she she does benefit from it um, in terms of of, of of rank choice. Again, whether. Whether she plays that strategy well this time, I don't know. I think when she ran the first time, again, she was the front runner after the first vote and was very successful in terms of playing the ranked choice voting um, in order to win the mayorship. Um, I still don't disagree. I, I, be- I believe her. I, I simply remember her going out and saying, well, if I'm not your first choice, let me be your second choice. Second choice, right. So I think she played it very well. I think she played it very well. But, but remember, there's also two other things here. She also had a few weeks ago um, two of her top staffers quit on her, and there are rumors that her campaign doesn't have a lot of money at this point. And so, so there's lots of stuff swirling that are really making it difficult for her um, running for this second term. Right. And I think you do have this enormous pressure with the Super Bowl. Exactly. I mean, this, this is a singular event, right. and everybody will be looking at, at Minneapolis. And then you also have had this exodus from downtown Minneapolis of all these retailers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just tonight, in fact, uh, the closing of, of the Barnes & Noble there, Bar- which is uh, sitting opposite the empty Macy's. That's right. And right. Um, it's uh, been decimated. That's right. Really decimated, although there are apparently some plans. I guess Haskell's is going to be opening a wine Bar, you know, but it's, that seems all so small compared to the loss of these larger retailers, and you just kind of wonder what what will happen. And obviously, um, 
We shall see. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be as – didn't it take several days to figure out who the winner was last time because there were so many candidates? It did. It did. There were 38 <laughs> people last time. I think it took about three or four days. It did. They did change some of the rules about ballot access. Um, um, and They made it a little harder to enter. I think the entry fee was about $10 It was $10. <laughs> it was back then. So something like that. I mean, crazy like that. Yeah, I, think, so. I, I think anybody could have entered the race, and just about anybody did. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, uh, David Schultz, thank you so much. Um, and when is your sojourn? To what, What's your next sojourn out of the country? My next sojourn, actually, next Saturday, I am leaving for Jerusalem for five days. Wow. And so I will not be around for next Saturday. Um, but then after that, I'm around for quite a while. Then it'll be two weeks in, in July that I'll be teaching in Beijing. Wow, that, that, that sounds very... Well, it'll be interesting to hear your perspective from the Middle East as well. Yeah. All right, when you return. Well, listen... Safe travels uh, to Jerusalem, and uh, can't wait to hear what you have to say afterwards in a couple of weeks. Good, and I'll send you the comb-over picture of, of Donald Trump. Absolutely, and I'll put it back up. And it is on my Twitter, at Esme Murphy. Thank you so much, sir. Bye. All right, folks. Uh, thank you to David Schultz again. Thank you to Susan Blanche, the producer of this show, to Jonathan Lowe, and to Kevin Reed, our studio coordinators. Please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. I'll be there live with... Mike Augustinak with all the latest news, weather, and any developments in sports. Thank you so much. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.